Good morning, San Diego. Good morning, Communications Network. I'm Alfred Ironside. I serve as head of communications at the Ford Foundation in New York, and it's my pleasure to now serve as the chair of the Communications Network Board as of today. Thank you. My job today is quite simple. It is to acknowledge my wonderful predecessor. So let me begin by asking this question by a round of applause. How many of you are aware that the network is governed by a board made up of your peers? How many? Very good, very good. And how many of you have had a conversation with a member of the network who's a member of the board in the last 24 hours, by a round of applause. Excellent. Finally, and be honest, how many of you, if asked, could have said that the chair of the board for the last two years has been Minna Jung? All right, all right, you impressed me. That's about half of you. For the other half, let me take two minutes Two minutes to explain why it's important that we acknowledge her. And Minna, Minna, where are you? Come on up here, Minna. Come on up here. So this community is owned by all of us because it is our interests and uh, our participation, uh, our vitality that drive the network. Whether you're a veteran or a newcomer this week, we own this network. But I would add that over the last several years, there has been a tiny handful of people who behind the scenes have um, worked, I would say nearly every day, to ensure that our experience of this community um, adds value and meaning for us. And chief among those tiny handful of people is Minna Jung. For example, uh, for eight of the last 10 years, Minna nearly single-handedly designed and drove the content for these conferences. This is a huge undertaking, six months in the planning. Um, and she did this while she was also serving on network committees that built membership, that drove fundraising, um, that oversaw governance of the network. And for the past four years, serving as, four years ago, starting to serve as vice chair of the board, and two years ago as chair of the board. She has made enormous contributions over these last 10 years, and doing all that while being an astounding professional, uh, first at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, then becoming director of communications at the Packard Foundation, and now as VP of comms at a wonderful NGO called Earth Justice, which, if you're an aficionado of such things, has an absolutely fantastic tagline, which is... Because the earth needs a good lawyer. I love that. I love that. <laughs> if this network has made you feel at any time good, if at any time you thought to yourself, wow, that was a great experience, or I'm learning something today, or what great idea, <clears throat> or I need to get a life. <laughs> if at any time you've had one of those feelings, there's a very good chance that it is traceable back to something that Minna has done. Um, something she initiated, something she improved, or something she just made happen. And that's why I wanted to acknowledge her, and I wanted all of you to know these things about her so that you could join me and saying thank you for Minna's astounding contributions and enormous commitment to this community. Minna Young. <laughs> We're done. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a great conference.
I'm not doing the rap thing. Sorry, Kimberly. Morning. How are you guys feeling? Really? Like half asleep? It sounded half asleep. Last night? I'm not going to lie, guys. I hoped it would be half of what it was. Uh, and the thing that's extraordinary is even as we were out there in the hot sun yesterday, and it was hot yesterday, and we saw the sort of the trucks rolling in and everything, and it looked like a party, the amazing thing is it was nothing. It didn't come to life until you guys started to come onto the beach. And then, oh my God, that was fun as hell. <laughs> if you guys are tweeting right now, please do not tag me, because I don't want my wife to know. She's not here. <laughs> All right, I got a couple things I have to do. One, uh, explain to you why I think we're all here. Of course, for many of you, you're, you're members of the network. And for some of you, you're not. And I don't understand why not. Please, come on, get in. The water's fine. You, you saw that last night. Uh, but I think the reason that we do this is because we believe deeply in the work that we do and the organizations that we serve, right? I look out in this crowd, and there's a lot of really bright people who could be doing any number of extraordinary things. But every one of you has devoted yourself to something bigger than yourself. And whether that's because you got a bug for this particular idea or issue when you were a kid, or because it's something you believe is important for your community, or to represent your family, whatever that reason is, when you roll out of bed in the morning, you are trying to do good, right? And the network, all of us, together are trying to help you. Just look around, just look to the person next to you. They're trying to help you do good better. That's why we're here. Whenever somebody asks me, what is the network? I say, you know, look, it's a community first, but it's also a giant map. Every one of you has wisdom and experience. And I often say, you know, when you're asking what the network is, it's someone shouting back behind them, there's a bear up here, all right, look out. Or there's snow ahead, bring your boots. And we use that to do all of our work, the work that we do better. So I have to thank a few people, and then I'm going to get off stage. You'll see more of me, obviously, over the next couple days. First and foremost, thank you to our new board chair, Alfred Ironside of the Ford Foundation, and thank you to our entire board uh, for the service that they do. They all have, as you might imagine, jobs like yours, equally demanding, and yet they make time for what is oftentimes very much a second full-time job. So if you would, just join me in a round of applause. I'm not going to clap because i got to break this thing, but thank you so much. And I... I, I, too, would like to acknowledge Minna Jung just very, very briefly, because without Minna, I wouldn't be here. And I got to tell you, this job is ridiculously fun. It's a pleasure to wake up every day and work with all of you. So she has been a partner, a mentor. Uh, she has been an extraordinary friend. So again, if you don't mind, I think she deserves it. Probably deserves more than a round of applause. I also have to thank uh, our sponsors, right? It's, it's, it's true that we had a wonderful time last night and that wouldn't have happened without the Knight Foundation, Casey Family Programs, and Atlantic Media Strategies. And today, and what's ahead for us over the next two days, wouldn't happen without these folks, right? So the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, and the Walton Family Foundation. Uh, thanks to, to all of you so much. Uh, for the contribution and the signal that it sends to the rest of the sector that the work that we do matters. And we know it does. So finally, I uh, have the distinct honor of uh, introducing you to somebody that I get to call a friend, and I hope over time you will too. Uh, his name is Lamont Guillory, and he is a communications director at an organization called the Lore Foundation, which is in, uh, he's based out of Jackson, Wyoming. So if you've been following the little map we've had of who's attending and where they're from, he's the guy in Wyoming. Uh, and their work is extraordinary, really neat, cool, cutting-edge stuff. They are thinking about how people will live their lives over the next 20, 50, 100 years in the Intermountain West, which is, a, of course, a place of extraordinary beauty and, for a lot of people living there, extraordinary challenges and big questions about how they want their communities to evolve in a face of a number of questions, both economic, cultural, and obviously related to, I'd say it, but climate. Uh, 
So uh, I'm going to get off the stage. We're going to have a fabulous session. Lamont is going to be introducing our first panel here. If, by the way, just one last little piece of housekeeping, if you are on social media and you left friends at home, uh, we are live streaming this keynote and all of the others over the course of the next two days. They will be extraordinary. So you can bring a friend along by inviting them to check it out on the live stream. Uh, Lamont, where are you? Are you backstage? There you are. Thank you, Sean. Um, good morning, and welcome to ComNet 15. Yes. Um, my name is Lamont Guillory, and I am the communications director for the Lower Foundation. I'm really excited to spend the next two days learning from you and with you, um, and making ideas move so we can ignite change in our communities, our nation, and our world. So we at the Lohr Foundation are very passionate about the communities of the Intermountain West. Um, that includes Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. We believe in community-driven conservation. To some of you, that may be a new term, but to us, it means improving the quality of life and enhancing livability um, for these people in these five states. It means improved access to nature, um, cultural experiences, clean water, economic stability, and transportation options. These towns in the Intermountain West are demonstrating every day that thoughtful community planning and open space conservation benefits both the communities in which they live, but also the environment that we hold dear. So the Lohr Foundation has been grant making for quite some time. But just this week, today in fact, we launched new strategic communications efforts to put a little special sauce behind the work we do. So I invite all of you to visit our new website. Yes, this is our very first website. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> but don't everybody rush all at once because we don't want you to crash our newly designed website. We also launched today our uh, Twitter handle, at Lore Foundation. So please go there, join us, reach out to us, and uh, I encourage you to learn more about what we do, why we do it, and who we do it for. My main mission this morning besides providing you with a background of the Lore Foundation, is to introduce a woman who truly needs no introduction. Soledad O'Brien is an Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist, documentarian, philanthropist, and businesswoman. She has covered the most important events of our time, from the rise of the internet economy to Hurricane Katrina. At CNN, Soledad developed two highly successful documentary series, Black in America and Latino in America. Her coverage of race in America won two Emmys, and she earned a third for her coverage of the 2012 presidential election. Today, she continues to set a new standard for in-depth storytelling. In 2013, Soledad launched Starfish Media Group, a multi-platform media production and distribution company dedicated to a single idea, uncovering empowering stories to help us better understand the lives of people of different races, cultures, and economic backgrounds. Whether she's developing documentaries for CNN or Al Jazeera America, or hosting specials for the National Geographic Channel, Soledad knows how to touch hearts change minds, improve lives, and challenge perspectives. Please stand up and join me in welcoming the Soledad O'Brien with a conversation with Jade Floyd, Director of Communications at the Case Foundation.
everyone. Welcome. I'm really honored to be here on behalf of the Case Foundation and welcome Soledad to Thank the stage. You. Thank you. My pleasure. So we have, you know, about 30 minutes. I want to have a conversation with Soledad and then I want to get to questions with all of you because I know you have some great thoughts and things that you've been thinking about that you would like for her to explore. So last week you did a Reddit AMA. Yes. This is your second, I believe. Mm -hmm. And someone asked you a question. They said, what makes a great interview? <laughs> And your response, you said in the first part, was don't ask the first question that you intend to ask. Yeah, I do. I, when, when I was doing a morning television show, I, I like to write down and really strategize about how I'm going to do an interview. And then once I kind of make my list, I always chop off the first one. Because usually it's some sort of weak question, frankly. Like, oh, so, you know, tell me about the book you wrote. You know, and that's not really a way to start a conversation, especially if you're on TV and you have four minutes. You kind of want to just dive in. And, and you want to immediately sort of unseat someone so that they, they are more authentic, I think. I agree. And so I think chopping off the first question is a really good strategy. But also really having your questions, for me, laying them out and being very strategic. I'm not really, I don't really wing things very well. I, I really like to have an arc in an interview um, where you're, you know, you kind of know what you're trying to get to. And I, that's, you know, once I kind of figured it out, and it took a little while, um, it really, uh, it was a good strategy. Well, it was good advice, because I eliminated my first question. Excellent. This morning. <laughs> so I'm going to jump straight to the second question. And it's actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about your parents and your sure. family. Your parents, um, Cuban-American and Australian and Aussie, yeah. raised six of you. Yes. And I hear that all six of you attended Harvard. I think we're still paying for it, actually. I think yeah. I, I still have, like, I pay $115 every month <laughs> my student loan. Yeah, you know, my parents were both educators. My parents met in Baltimore in 1958. And, um, and they met because I used to go to daily mass, actually. And, they, um, and my dad basically hit on my mom and, and picked her up one day and took a, gave her a ride to church. Um, and then they made a date to go on a date, but every restaurant that they went to in Baltimore in 1958 wouldn't seat them together because my mom is Afro-Cuban and my dad is white and he's Australian. And so my mom brought my dad back to his apartment and back to her apartment and made him this she's an amazing cook of Cuban food. And she used to tell us a story to all her girls, and her whole entire point was like, see girls, if you could cook, you could get a man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, huh. I can't really cook. And can you um, cook? No, you know, <laughs> I can make it happen. Okay. That's what I like to say. Um, and so my parents were both educators. My dad was a professor who uh, focused on mechanical engineering. My mom ended up being a, a Spanish and French teacher in um, my high school. And I think that they just really valued education, especially my mom. You know, when you leave Cuba and there's a sense of everything can be taken from you or you might have to leave someplace with nothing. You know, she really was very obsessed with this idea. But, you know, it, but if you have an education, if you have an education, no one can ever strip that from you. You go anywhere, you have it still. And so they just really um, you know, valued education. My parents, you know, we, we, I grew up in the North Shore of Long Island, and there were not a lot of um, people of color. And it was a very interesting education in kind of how to navigate a world where demographics were changing very rapidly. I think my, my parents were actually asked by the ACLU to be the couple that would test the ban on interracial marriage. Um, and they declined, missing history, <laughs> because my dad's like, no, I'm working on my PhD. No, don't think so. Um, We're busy. But I think that they always had this navigation around how do you think about issues of race and how do you also make sure they're not derailing you so that you're moving forward and you're being optimistic but not being Pollyanna-ish about the real issues that exist. And it was a very interesting way to grow up. Sometimes it was really challenging. I grew up in a town um, where there really were no people of color, or very few. And, um, and it was just an interesting way to, to, to think about race. And, um, and I think it affected how I would later report on race and class, because I felt you know, in a way you had, I had a bit of an outsider status that allows you to kind of engage and think um, about these issues from a bit of a distance. Uh, yeah, but I, I think mostly we, we went on, off to Harvard for a couple of reasons. One, we were a very tight family, and we didn't, you know, there were a lot of people who would not play with people of color in our neighborhood. You know, there are people who would not, you know, would not let their kids go out with you. 
You know, very, there are people who used to pick it at the bottom of our driveway when a black family would move in. My mother had a Chevette at the time. She'd be like, beep, beep, get out of the way. <laughs> um, it's so crazy thinking about that. That was the 1980s. That was the 1980s. Wow. Um, and um, so I think we, we really were studious because we just spent a lot of time together and, and, and also because my parents focused on it. They really believed that education was a great opportunity. And I think like a lot of immigrants, they had this sense of, listen, if you come somewhere and there's a good opportunity, take it, take it, take it. Exactly. And that guides a lot of the philanthropic work that you do today Absolutely. with your foundation. Absolutely. Yeah, my husband and I started um, the Starfish Foundation right after Hurricane Katrina. We started it very you know, unofficially, I guess, at first. I was very frustrated because well, you're, when I was covering Katrina, you would see, uh, as people would apply for funds, for example, their business, the roof had blown off and they needed $1,000 to fix their roof and so they'd apply for funds and they'd get 873, right? Which is a lot, but not quite enough to fix the roof and get back in business. And it was really frustrating as a reporter and I, I tend to be very pragmatic about these things and I started meeting young people who wanted to go to college but they lacked you know, $2,217. And I was like, well, shoot, I think I can raise that. Let's, let's get that person $2,217. And so kind of in an ad hoc way, we started adding young women is what, where we focused and started sending them to school. And then, of course, as we realized that they actually needed more, they needed mentors. So we started giving each girl, assigning them a couple of mentors. And then they needed exactly, frankly, what my kids were getting, right? They needed cheerleading, pushing, um, sometimes tutoring, sometimes interventions. You know, they needed a lot. And so we uh, now have 25 girls that we send to and through college. We focused a lot more on the through, uh, not just, hey, hey, you got in, but now we're going to get you through. And even now, we're, now that you're through, we need to help you transition into getting a job. So we've been really successful on that front. Yesterday, one of our scholars got a job. I was so happy. I'm like, it's, it's like your own child moving out of your oh, house. Yeah. You're like, yes, Lord, got <laughs> a job. Uh, and then we started doing these big um, conferences, learning what we were learning from our young women, um, who mostly are of color, who mostly are in poverty, who mostly don't have parents who are helpful, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes have parents who are actually grabbing them by the ankle and sucking them under. Um, they're maybe the most functional person in their family. And so we started holding these powerful, we call them conferences. Uh, we do them in New Orleans and New York. We've been asked to bring it to Tampa and LA this year and uh, Detroit. Uh, so we'll probably do five in 2016, where we invite community-based organizations to send us their young women, Girls Inc., Tyra Banks, Lower East Side Girls Club, any community-based organization, we give them seats for a full-day seminar where we literally walk through very pragmatic things. What I realized that a lot of these young women, they were, they were getting killed on the soft skills, yeah. right? They're getting killed on what to wear to, to apply for an internship. They're getting killed on how to speak, how to, how to respond after an internship, you know, how to write a thank you note that was appropriate. They, um, you know, they just didn't know the what to wear was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. it, my kids have been dragged to the office, right? So they know what mom wears on an important thing, what mom wears to a black tie event, what mom wears to a casual breakfast meeting. These young women, if you said, and I have said, you know, wear something dressy, People would come looking like they just rolled out of the club. I'm like, oh my god! First, let me get you a jacket because I'm like, there is like, whoa, whoa, no, ew. Yeah, but they had no idea. They're, they had parents in many cases who had never held an office job, who also had never had the discipline of going to like a nine to five. So they really didn't understand those things that. I think a lot of us learn by osmosis, you know, you just kind of see it happen. So we really started doing this for a large number of young women, full day seminar, those poor girls, they were eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. We run them through very pragmatic things and we bring in big speakers. This year, Misty Copeland was our keynote and she sat down and talked to them about, um, you know, we take successful women and kind of deconstruct how they got there and often, you know, they didn't start off on the path to success. And I think it's really important to show these young women of color, like there are plenty of people who started off like you, exactly like you. So let's analyze what she did right. And let's analyze where she screwed up. And I think we've had such a great um, opportunity with our keynoters because they're very honest. And we try to bring that to, we've been doing about 300 girls at a time. Um, our limiting factor is sort of space mm -hmm. because we do breakout sessions. We talk a lot about health. A lot about sex, having a baby can derail, obviously, your college experience, so we're very clear about those things. And I think, um, and we talk a lot about STEM, 
because they talk about STEM, but they don't know what STEM is. So we bring in different women from different businesses to talk about what they do and the, the cool jobs that they have. That STEM is not just you know sitting there with a lab coat on, but STEM can be you know diving underwater for oil exploration. I mean, there's just so many interesting things, and I think ultimately. It's what I try to do for my own kids. I have four kids. You know, you try to expose them to stuff, right? You haul them through Paris because and I'm like, I don't want to see the Eiffel Tower. Like, <laughs> you will see the Eiffel Tower because we are exposing you to culture. <laughs> Let's go. And we will stuff you with croissants so you don't have meltdowns along. You know, but, but that's why we do it, right? Because we want our children to be exposed so that when they go places, they say, I've, I've been to Paris. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah, I went to Paris with my parents when I was 10. Yeah. Did not want to go. Had a, one of those click cameras that you can take photos of, and you're not supposed to take the photo of the Mona Lisa. Right. I snuck it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> my, my son, Jackson, who was about four at the time when we went to see the Picasso exhibit, said, um, oh my god, this is just scribble scrabble. <laughs> like, yes, basically, but still, <laughs> pay attention. So you're mentoring many young girls across. Not me personally. We connect them to mentors. I mean, I mentor everybody in, by text in terms mm -hmm. of like, hey, good for you. Hey, I hear you have an important test. Hey, what do you need? Getting them to advocate for themselves is actually the biggest challenge. Getting them to say, I'm afraid. I'm failing this class. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to wear. Getting people to tell you up front. And I think that's true with our own children, right? Getting them to tell you up front before they're, they're down the road and it's spiraling out of control. Yeah. to tell you ahead of time. But I personally don't mentor them. I mean, I'm sort of like emailing everybody. and Actually, no, no young women email anymore. They all text, so I text everybody. Um, but each girl has her own mentors. Mm -hmm. And so I check in with the mentors. Um, there's a lot of great computer programs now where you can really keep a great spreadsheet on what everybody's doing and how many interactions they are having. So that's been really helpful for us. Huh. So obviously, you have a storied career. Um, from production company, which you launched, uh, to an award-winning anchor, a mother, a philanthropist. And I spent my last vacation reading your new book. Oh, thank you. I don't know, new is maybe it's a couple few, years. few years, mm -hmm. but it's, it's called The Next Big Story, My Journey Through the Land of Possibilities. And as I was reading it, and I kind of went back over some of my notes last night, there was one piece that really jumped out to me, and I'll it's read it. It's always terrifying when someone takes your books, words you've written, and they're like, I, can I do this to people? And they're like, so, let me ask you about page 74, <laughs> paragraph three. And you're like, God, what did I write? Well, on page 184, <laughs> last paragraph, it says, I want to show the face of a community where character counts. I know folks don't only want to hear the stories that are sad, but there's much to learn from failure, and there's many lessons in those challenges. Mm, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about a moment of failure in your life that you learned from and how you failed forward. Oh gosh, there have been so many, like a ton. Um, I think that, and I don't know if it's about failing forward, I think it's about failing and learning lessons. Um, a great example, when I was anchoring the morning show, I remember they decided that they would replace me, and because it's television news, it's always done like horrifically, right? There's like, replacing, what? We're not replacing, what? No, never. Anyway, here's the person who's taking your job. She's 10 years younger than you. It's always like that. And, but truly, that is not even, like that was not even an exaggeration. That's literally exactly how it went. Um, and so I remember sitting in the meeting uh, with my boss, and he called me in, and I had kind of had an inkling that there was stuff changing because everyone would come to me and say, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, I'm good. Should I not be um, right? <laughs> And this is before, uh, this is the, the very, before I started doing documentaries for CNN. And he called me into his office and I didn't realize this, that some offices have a button that can close the door from the desk. Right? So he goes, click, and the door closes, like magically closes. I was like, uh-oh, this can't be good. <laughs> this cannot be good. And, but because I kind of knew something was coming up, he said, listen, we're going to take you off the morning show. And he had invited me to go have lunch. And at the end of it, I said, OK, well, so are we still having lunch? Or was that? And he said, oh, you're not going to cry, are you? I was like, I said, should I cry? <laughs> Everything you said sounds like you're giving me an interesting opportunity here. Why don't we go to lunch and work it out? And we sat down. And because I had kind of run through it in my head the nights before, 
we ended up having a really productive conversation that allowed me to both keep my title, which was anchor, and that's relevant because it's correlated to how much you'll get paid, you know, mm -hmm. depending on your title, you, obviously. And number two, to carve out a really great career doing documentaries for CNN. By the time I left CNN, I had done 40 documentaries, and I had ab was able to negotiate a deal where I would take all those documentaries with me. So I'm one of the rare correspondents who owns all her content. That's great. Yes, thank you to my agents, yes. But, so I think what I learned was, instead of like freaking out about something really dramatic happening, I was able to be like, well, let's keep this on track, right? And let's sit down, and, and, and in a way, he was kind of, you know, he was so surprised that I wasn't freaking out that, that he was willing to sit down and, and really work out, like, okay, what's your title gonna be? What are you gonna do? And I ended up being moved into a job that I think helped create the, the brand, if you will, or the reputation that I have today around the documentaries that we do. It ended up being an amazing thing. And then I would go back to doing the morning show after that, which I, I loved, I mean, I really, I love doing interviews, I love TV. Um, but I think it was, you know, a, a really terrible thing that was sort of ended up focusing, you know, to becoming a really good thing. And I constantly tell people, you know, if this really terrible thing doesn't happen to you sometimes, you're not really positioned to take the next good thing that comes your way. It's hard to think of that when it's happening, but I think most of us in this room would sort of think about things that ended badly that kind of opened the door for something interesting Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. Steve Jobs fired from Apple. Michael Jordan cut from his basketball team. Oprah told she's not I fit love the for company television. you're putting me in. Yes, and Soledad O'Brien. And Soledad O'Brien. Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so that next opportunity, what was next for you? You started Starfish. So that, then I, I stayed at CNN probably for another five or six years, and then um, the last time, in the last two years, when they were changing leadership and they wanted to change the direction of the morning show, I kind of felt like I had built a reputation for the work that I wanted to do, and I was ready to go do something else. Actually, a couple of years before that, I'd created a production company, mostly in name only, trying to figure out, like, you know, how do I, how do, I do just what I want to do? And so when all those changes came, we got a new executive to come in to lead CNN, uh, who had been my old boss, actually, at the Today Show um, years ago, uh, years before. Um, it just seemed like a good time to go. And so I, I ended up leaving and started a, a company. And it was fascinating. I mean, there were a couple of things that I really learned. One, having never taken an accounting class ever, when it's your own money, you're like, wait a minute, whoa, wait, back up, <laughs> let's study this again. Um, it was just fascinating. And it was really, we, we were really fortunate. We were busy from the get-go. At some point, before we even had office space, um, we had lots and lots of orders for docs and productions, and we were on my dining room table, and my husband would come home every day like, wow, that's great. So, you're not gonna stay here at the dining room <laughs> table, right? Like you're, they're gonna move this off the dining room table at some point. Uh, and then, you know, we started building a company and it's been a really interesting experience, a really great experience. And I think it gives you a lot of leverage to do the kinds of things that you wanna do, certainly in terms of the kind of stories that I wanted to do. And you're most definitely a trust, trusted news source. And there was a Gallup poll that has actually released in the last day or so that said Americans, have a distrust in the news and it's at an all-time low. So why do you think that is? Where I, is it? You know, I think it's because the news, what, what's on the news is often not news. You know, I think that people are at a time when we really could be having some interesting and blunt conversations about important issues. A lot of what's airing is either um, this sort of yell fest back and forth. I'll give you an example. Um, you're interviewing a senator and a congressman, and you say, you know, a, 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 a lazy way of interviewing them is saying, Senator Jones, thank you for being with us. So Congressman Smith called you a big fat liar. How do you respond? I'm not a big fat liar, he's a big fat liar. Thank, hang on, Congressman Smith? Senator Jones, I think you just heard him. He said, no, you're the big fat liar. How do you respond? Okay, thank you, sir. And you, like that, you know, and you can fill four minutes with that, but you don't learn anything about anybody. It's very lazy. It's lazy interviewing, and there's a lot of that. That's just this chaotic kind of, you know, good interviews are hard to do. They require a ton of studying, right? They require you to understand policy. 
They ha under, you have to understand what someone's record on saying something is. You have to really spend a lot of time researching them. It's really, really hard. It's much easier to just have people kind of food fight in front of you and then say, oh, we're out of time. I want to thank you both for being with us today. I mean, that's, you know, so I think that's one way in which people don't feel like they're getting anything out of the news. And then, of course, the topics that are covered are often, I, I have learned more about Kim and Kanye's second baby coming than, and I think they're a great couple. I support them fully. But I, I don't, I mean, I hope she has a healthy pregnancy. Like, I'm really happy for her, but I, I don't really need that in news. I can get that on Twitter, which is totally good. You know, so I think that I, I understand why people don't trust the news, because they don't, there's a lot of non-news that's being pitched as news. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is you have this, this vicious cycle. You start chasing an audience, and, you know, you stop covering things that are meaningful. And making an impact. Absolutely. So, I mean, all of us in this room work for organizations and individuals who are making true impact across the globe. And I think we have a tough time also when, you know, we've saved X number of lives or we've implemented XYZ program that, you know, is going to radically change the way medical research takes place. But we're fighting with the Kardashians of the world and others to really get our stories told. So how can we as communicators be better storytellers? So I think that's two different things because you're talking a little bit about platforms. So first I would say the key is to figure out how to get on the platforms that are interested in what you're doing. And there are platforms that are interested. You just have to figure out like, okay, how do we, how do we get on that platform? Um, a lot of the work that I've started doing with PBS and CNN still likes to do a lot of the stories that I think folks in this room are interested in. Then you get to storytelling. They have to be told in the right way. I mean, I'm doing, for example, a project with PBS around incarceration, a five-part series that will look at incarceration in America. You know, it would be great to get organizations to come in and make that happen. We can easily do that and probably air sometime in the beginning of the year. But there are tons of people, I'm sure, in this room who care about incarceration as an issue and want to make sure that they're participating in some capacity. Um, and then the storytelling part of it, I think often organizations do a really poor job of storytelling because in what you described, Nobody cares about numbers. Nobody cares about you know the what we call the wide shot, the thirty-five thousand. They don't. The way you tell a story, and we really learn this in our Black in America and Latino in America documentary series, you find one person, and you tell the story through them, and they don't have to be a stand-in for the rest of the world. I do remember someone in our Latino in America doc saying, I didn't see, I'm a Peruvian from San Antonio, Texas, and I didn't see myself. I'm like, that's right. You're not in it. You are not in this doc. You know, you're not, I, I, I can't, you know, you, like any storytelling, any time you try to do the big wide picture, it will be bad. Mm -hmm. It will be lame. You have to tell stories through individuals' stories and make them relatable and so human that people say, oh my God, that girl's story is not mine, and yet I understand the human experience through mm -hmm. that individual character. And you imbue them with, you know, God is in the details. Whoever said that was a genius, because God is in the details. You want to understand what this character is going through. I'll give you a good example. When we did our, our Black in America doc, I interviewed a guy named Butch Warren, and he had grown up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he was really distrustful of white people. He'd been beaten up at the Little Rock High School, which had only recently, when he was in, had been um, desegregated. His older cousin was one of the Little Rock Nine, right? So he really had this huge distrust. And we were talking about what it's like to leave an impoverished neighborhood, mostly minority, and move to the nice neighborhood, mostly white. And what was gained and what was lost in that. And in and one of the things that we saw, I was having dinner with his family. We did an interview. We sat down for dinner. And he had three sons. And each son had a white girlfriend. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so we set up the cameras again. And I said, so how do you feel about that? Like, here's a guy who literally, two, you know, an hour and a half ago, told me how he doesn't trust white people even today. And, that, and he said, I said, so how do you feel about your sons you know, having white wives or white girlfriends? And it was like, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. <laughs> Mississippi said, I'm good with it. <laughs> but you know, it was really, to me, that moment was about the arc of how we as Americans heal from racism, right? Like you could see in his story, how do you move forward and leave behind people and move into a place where they live in a white neighborhood. His sons are going to date white girls. They live in a white neighborhood. And just the challenges and the nuance to his story, which was such a great story. Mm -hmm. um, but you could only tell that 
through digging into his story, you don't want to tell the story of the population movements over the last 15 years. That's boring. Mm -hmm. You tell it through one guy and, and what it means to move ahead and leave things behind. And there's lots of versions of that. And I see it all the time in, in um, some of the storytelling that I see online where you know, it's generic ch children in a school. Every year, 62,000 children don't go to school. You know, I, I don't, who's that kid? Why don't they go to school? Mm -hmm. What's their story? Tell me that one story of that kid and let them be the placeholder for everybody. And you will, the only way to grab people's hearts and really tell a story well. Otherwise, it's just a lot of wide shots and I can't really relate to it. Can't work with that. So tell us who are those storytellers out there or maybe those platforms that you think are doing it really well. You know, I think Al Jazeera America has actually done a really good job tackling some of the issues that people care about. They don't have a huge viewership, but so that's a, a problem, and I, the problem they recognize, and they have some issues on the digital side, but I think um, that they are very interested in these kinds of stories. Um, CNN, absolutely, will continue to produce Black in America for CNN. We're doing our Latino in America tour now. Just launched this We just week. launched it, you know, and a lot of that was to say, if you look at, for 2013, 1% of the news stories were about Latinos. 1% at a time when we're about to come up on an election that is going to be hugely uh, relevant to Latino population. And most of that 1% was around immigration and illegal immigration. And it's like there's so many other stories to tell. There's so many other stories to tell. So we took on this tour because we thought, you know, could we have a conversation about the other bunch of stories that are out there that involve Latinos, that's not just the same cliched story that you see time and time and time again. So I think CNN still, CNN.com has a massive audience. CNN um, definitely has interest in that. MSNBC, they're revamping their coverage. And so I think we're gonna see over the next couple of months the kinds of stories that they wanna see, they've really shifted. Um, certainly The Guardian is a great uh, organization. PBS has always been fantastic. And as a great platform, I think that they're a really good organization to work with um, around storytelling. Um, so I think there's actually a lot. You know, you're not going to get on entertainment tonight unless Kim Kardashian does come with you to your whatever it is that you're doing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but I don't know that that's where you want to be. I, I think that there's actually a lot of organizations, a tons of print, tons of blogs, tons of podcasts. So I think there's a lot of opportunity, actually. Um, but you have to have a story. And start with that person. So I want to talk a little bit about the millennial generation. Sure. I am the last of the millennials. And me too. <laughs> I wish. <Can't. laughs> so 80 million strong. And at the Case Foundation, it's a, a generation that we've explored and researched to understand how they give, connect, interact with philanthropy, nonprofits, and causes. And they've often been labeled as lazy and narcissistic um, and a generation that's quite selfish. But we really feel that at the Case Foundation, it's the exact opposite. Mm, I agree with you. But the way that they're consuming news is quite different than the way our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation did. So how are you as a storyteller, as a producer, as a journalist, adapting to this changing generation that's consuming in 140 characters? Yeah, absolutely, and, and sometimes not even. I mean, I think that Snapchat is really how they're consuming news, um, and sometimes for the older millennials, um, Facebook. You know, I think you reach people where they are. I agree with your assessment. Millennials are the most interested in social issues. They absolutely are passionate and obsessed. Um, I was hosting the Global Poverty, the, the Global Citizen Festival, which focuses on global poverty and its eradication in 2030. And it's just full of millennials who really are trying to figure out, how can I be a voice for something that I believe in? They have a, a very honed sense of injustice and really want to personally make a difference. I have not found millennials to be lazy. I have found them easy to walk if they feel like this is not what I want to do. They don't feel like they have to dive in and spend the next 10 years slogging away you know, to, to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, I think the way you reach them is where they are. You know, it's funny talking, my oldest daughter is 15, and then I have a 13-year-old daughter and two 11-year-old uh, twin boys. And you know, she just thinks it's so bizarre that people watch TV at a certain time. She's like, wait, so, <laughs> so you guys, like you all would sit down to watch Seinfeld? Like, so everybody would like run to the living room and watch a show, like and record yeah. it on the VCR. <laughs> you know, I just she just thinks it's like the most amazing. But like 
everybody would come together and you just sit there and together watch a show? You know, it's just bizarre for her. She can't imagine it. And, and I think that, you know, the way that she gets her information is much different. And the way I deal with her in information, right? I don't leave her post-it notes around the house. We text all day. We, you know, that's how we communicate. It's the same thing. You, you find the issues that matter. I think the great news is that millennials are very engaged in the issues that interest everybody in this room. It's because of that very finely honed sense of injustice. You know, for example, right, you see the, the, the photo of the, the Syrian man carrying his dead baby, right? Like, that was, that was brutal. That was the one story that spoke, spoke for the entire issue. It, that, that moves young people in a way that I think older people sometimes are like, wow, that's really sad. Click, let's go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So how you, how you manage that and how you engage that is to reach them where they are, mm -hmm. to reach them where they are, and not to put out things where they're not and expect that somehow they're going to be interested in what you're doing. And hashtags, I feel millennials you know, have obviously the, the Twitter force for good. Um, you know, Bring back our girls, Gaza under attack. There's a number of hashtags that are mobilizing these movements that are raising awareness for issues across the globe. And how do you feel about um, just the onslaught of hashtags, are they good for the news or are they bad yeah, for it? Yeah, I think to me that's a way to search an issue and really hear the disparate voices. I mean, if there, anybody you know, went into it thinking that somehow you know, putting a hashtag next, you know, in your tweet was going to move mountains, it's just not. But, but awareness is a very big part of getting people to action. And it's a long road, everybody in this room. It's a long road, you know? It's, so you have to sort of start with awareness. That's not a small thing. I think what the Global Citizens Festival has done is to bring awareness to issues by sort of using this, this rock festival to also say, but you know, there are a lot of people who are doing this and this and this. Now that you're here, let's give you the message of awareness of global poverty. I'd guess most people who come to that festival five years ago didn't even know what global poverty meant. So I think a hashtag is about a way of saying, Let's bring your awareness around this issue. Let's not let this drop so that you forget it. But it's not, it's not literally to tangibly make some difference. But I don't think it's a, a bad thing at all. I think it's a really, I think it's an interesting way, and certainly search-wise, if you want to you know, track down a number of voices who are having a conversation around an issue, you know, that's huge. Absolutely. And do you find yourself as you know, a journalist trying to dig into a story, find new ideas, are you using it all? Always, always. That as a tool uh, listen, to find Listen, what was happening unfolding in Ferguson, Missouri, if you remember, was at the same time that every news organization was attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It was the craziest thing. You're reading, I'm on Twitter, I'm obsessed with Twitter. I love Twitter. I fight with people like crazy on Twitter. I've seen. I tried to not fight. I tried not to fight with people who are eggs on Twitter because clearly they're like a 12-year-old boy in their mother's basement. You know? <laughs> so that's a waste of time, but I really enjoy it. But you're reading this Twitter account of what's happening, like tanks rolling through the streets of Ferguson, right? And you're watching, that's right, at table number seven, we've got so-and-so sitting with, um, you know, whoever, this, uh, for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And it was just such a weird, because it's news organizations, it was such a weird, I don't know how many people kind of remember that, weird juxtaposition of like, all y'all should get up and go cover a story that's breaking not very far you know, from where you all are, but instead you're in ball gowns. It was weird. Yeah. And guess what? Because of Twitter, the next day, they all went and covered that story. Yep. They really ignored it the day it was unfolding, and they covered it the next day. And they covered it only because that story was so big and taking over on Twitter that you couldn't ignore it. I think that was a really excellent example of the power of social media to move everybody else off their butts to go cover something that was worthy of being covered. I love that. So a few years ago, we'll say a few, it was, it was a while ago, <laughs> you hosted a show called The Site. A few years ago. I hosted that show in 1993. <laughs> a few years ago. Yes. A few years. And it was one of the first television programs that covered technology. technology. Yeah at a time when we didn't have Facebook, mm -hmm. we didn't have I Instagram. I interviewed Steve Case. You interviewed my boss. And to look at where that show came from with your tiny little avatar next to you, which was next to you at that time, and where we are today and how technology has really morphed news. There's 700 plus cable news stations, and we have so many different platforms. How has that made you as a communicator have to adapt with the times? Oh, that's and fantastic. It's so much better. Honestly, as an independent producer, I, I, when we started our company, we, we thought we could do this model of, could you work for everybody? 
usually you work for CNN, you, you know, CNN pays your benefits, you have a job that goes from this to this, and every day you come in and that's what you do. You know? and, and then if you don't want to be there, you leave and you go do something else. And we decided, could you create a model where you just are servicing a lot of different organizations? So I report for HBO Real Sports, I report for PBS, I report for Al Jazeera, I report for CNN, I do some stuff for, for Nat Geo. I mean, it's a really different model, but the only reason you can do that now is because there are so many platforms out there that they actually all need a lot of content, and they're looking for content that's going to um, make them distinct from other organizations because we do very you know, specific and targeted things. So yeah, I think that one, the, all those platforms has only been a huge bonus and I tell all the people in um, journalism and people who are interested in reaching those platforms that that's a good thing. Um, you know, that show years ago, first of all, we had a 56-6 modem and we would spend eight hours shooting a one hour show. Literally, we would go and spend the day shooting a show. It was an hour-long newscast on technology. And it was just, you know, it, 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 it was what made it interesting was we were digging into technology like anthropologists. Um, you know, what, how do you use technology to track down your adoptive parents, your, your, your birth parents if you're mm -hmm. adopted? Um, but, you know, I think that, that technology has only been an amazing thing. It's all about how you leverage it and, and use it and how you have to not be overwhelmed by it. You have to make sure you're, you're leveraging it. It's an incredible tool. It's an amazing tool. Um, I would never, I do not need to go back to 1993 no. and do a show where we're you know, waiting for them. We're all going to lunch because we're waiting for the visuals to load. <laughs> Literally, we would go out to lunch and then come back an hour and a half later and be like, yep, almost ready. Um, that was, you know, it was a great thing to do, but, it was, um, but where we are now is obviously much better. Much better, some would say. So I want to open it up to the audience. And while we're getting the microphones going around, um, I want to ask you, since your daughter mentioned that you know couldn't believe that you had actually sat around a couch and gathered together, what is on your DVR when you get back to I DVR the nothing. I DVR nothing. Is there anything I literally don't have time. No, you know, what I try to do is do a lot of, um, of Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's been a really interesting way to kind of see things in bulk. I think mm -hmm. that that's been great. Um, and you know, we can record stuff because we have a studio, so obviously we do it that way, and I can just see it on my, my, um, my you phone. Were you a House of Cards fan? Yeah, but you know, I, because I was in House of Cards, they just send me the series. Mm. But I really don't sit around and watch a ton of television. I get a lot of my, my information, and even documentaries that I'm watching, or, and, and even news shows that I'm watching, a lot of them I'm watching on my phone. I think a lot of people now are really using their mobile devices to get information. I have four children. I like, when do I have a time to sit down and, you know, and watch a show? And I'm on a plane, I'll watch you know, an entire season of Scandal or an entire season of Orange is the New Black, but I, don't, I really don't casually lounge in my living room watching you know, the things that, that um, you know, maybe one day I'll get to that point where like, everybody's gone off to college. <laughs> empty nesters. That would be a really nice thing. So questions from the audience. I'd love for you guys to explore some Conversations with Soledad. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, that is literally what I do for a living. So uh, this year we did a project with CoverGirl. They had a platform called Girls Can, and they asked us to find young women who were overcoming issues that they could use to profile around this platform. And um, so the first thing we do is we, we, as producers, just start digging into the issue. We ended up doing four mini docs for them. Each ran 10 minutes long. The first one focused on a young woman who is African American, and she's on the cusp of becoming the first black female chess master. But she grew up in poverty. And interestingly, which I'd never known about chess, is it's actually um, kids who are great at chess now have sponsors. They have high-tech computer programs to run them through the chess moves and to give them feedback on what they've messed up, right? So, so she's trying to compete at a level where she can't afford any of the stuff. And she's really, really good, but she's sort of stuck. She brings a notebook, and every time she has a chess match of some, in some competition, she writes it down by hand. And then if she has a chance to run into a mentor or someone who can help her, they reenact the entire match. Like this, she's doing it by paper and pen when everybody else just you know, hits their computer, enter, and absolutely can see what they've done. 
So how we found her was just to sit down and say, OK, if we're looking for young women who are overcoming, we just start researching, reading. Um, you, you just, it's just how we do news research. You just start searching, and eventually similar people start popping up. Um, different stories start popping up. Another woman we did was a young woman who's Native American named Tina, who served in the military, had gone into the military because um, finances. She wanted to go to college. She couldn't afford it. And came back after serving in uh, Iraq uh, with horrible post-traumatic stress. And so we went out, she's Navajo, and we went out to her community and spent a lot of time covering what she was doing to try to cure herself of really horrific post-traumatic stress and how little money was being spent actually on women in post-traumatic stress. And you know, the way we found her was there were lots of organizations that help veterans. We, we went out to sit in on one of their programs that was a, um, they take them into the field and put them through all these different, um, uh, what would you call them, like ropes courses and meditation classes. And we met her there. And you just go and you, you, you it's, it's basic reporting. You go, you camp out, you chat with people, and you figure out, are they a good candidate? Are they a good talker? Do they have an interesting background? Um, you know, can they connect the dots from their story to the bigger story? Uh, the third woman we did was a model. I had met her at an event. She, uh, in the middle of her story, 10-minute doc, she says, well, you know, I was born a boy in the Philippines. And she talks about her life um, growing up in a community in the Philippines that really embraced uh, people who are transgender, but actually, when they were off the stage, hated them. And, and how she came to the United States to create this um, career as a, a model. She walks in all the, the big shows. Um, but the terror she had that somebody would out her one day as being transgender. She said, every time I'd go on a shoot, I would just think, like, is today the day that somebody you know, outs me? Fascinating story. And then the third one was a young rapper who's Latina, who, um, who really was, grew up above her, her grandparents' garage in poverty and decided that she wanted to become a rapper. But you just, it's basic reporting. You land somewhere, and you start digging through people, and you start saying, you know, this person's good, but their story's not that interesting. This next person's got a great story, but they're not a good talker. This, it's just literally time on the ground and, and listening for those sound bites, and are they able to connect the dots? We do it for HBO Real Sports. We do it for any story that we do in the news. And I think anybody here, that's what you need to do. You need to go find that great character who can be the stand-in so that when you ask them, Outside of your story, let's talk about the big thing. They can make those connections, right? They can connect the dots for you, um, and that's the way to, to tell the story. It's a great question. It's actually not very hard. It literally is just shunt, you know, shunting through people. It's, it's not hard, and you have to just know what you're listening for. You right there. I think that's really hard. I, I, I really do. I think most people are not very comfortable with debate. And I think it's actually one of the issues that we've had in this country around race, right? It's like it's so uncomfortable that why would you ever want to, why would you want to be involved in that kind of conversation? You know, so I, I really, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. I, I think awkward and uncomfortable conversations are really important. And, and also understanding that people don't have to agree. But, but shows are no longer set up with the idea of let's have a, a debate on the issue. Some still are. But it's really tough. It's, you know, people now tend to talk to the converted and, and sometimes shout to the converted about an issue. It's really, really difficult. So next question. And I want the microphone to make its way over to you so we can make sure oh, yeah, to get we, that Oh, yeah, because we're recording. Yeah. Right behind you, Tristan. So hold on. We got a mic right there. There we go. Um, OK, it's working. Um, why does the news tend to be so negative and kind of, I would say, toxic? And even working in that field, I was being poisoned by it myself. And what can we do to make them part of the solution instead of part of the problem? Well, I think you're seeing a lot of people sort of flee the typical news. I, I completely agree with you. And you know what's interesting? Um, when you cover stories, usually they're very inspiring. I mean, you know, sometimes there's a lot of bad to tell. Certainly, like Hurricane Katrina, for an example, was a, lots of terrible things to tell. But, but the people around you were actually very inspiring. You know, people who, t I mean, imagine taking 30 people into your home, 
You know, and, and by the way, those people, it's, not, it's unclear when they're going to be leaving. You know, but, but you're, you have relatives, you have friends. Like, there were so many people who did these amazing, really heroic things, and I don't think that they get enough coverage. I don't know. It started for me in local news, where you almost wanted to focus on scaring the crap out of people. You know, like, terrible tragedy to tell you about. You know, and they wouldn't even tell you where. You're like, oh, where? where? You know, like, on my street? You know, and so it's become a bit of a shorthand, but I think you're right. I think people have sort of moved away from that. I think people want understanding. Right? I mean, I think you want basic, you know, like, yes, if there's something terrible that's happened over there, one, I want to avoid going there for now, but also I want to understand it. And I think we're kind of getting short on really understanding issues. We're just doing these little, you know, shorthand ways to scare people. Uh, you know, when I worked in local news, one of the things that we would do is very much in collusion, frankly, with the law enforcement, right? You know, if we knew they were doing a perp walk, they would time it to all the cameras coming out. They would wait for you, right? Oh, I'm going to be five minutes. Okay, hold, we'll hold the guy because you needed B-roll of the guy walking, right? So they would walk him in some completely unnecessary random circle past the cameras so that you had video to cover the story. You know, we weren't capturing, like, wow, we happened to catch this. Usually it was, you know, organized. That happens a lot, those, you know, perp walks. And I think for a lot of journalists, it took, certainly I was really young when I worked in local news. I didn't really understand you know, what we were creating and what we were, what we were doing. Um, but they're feeding off each other, right? You need them to give you the video, and then they need you to show the suspect. And so it's a bit of a, a, a dance. Tristan, right up here in the front row. Oh, Tristan's going to get a workout this morning, isn't he? Oh. Got to get the steps in. Thanks. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, what you do to make sure that you're honoring and respecting the people whose stories you're telling. I think the stories we're interested in telling in this room, they, they can be inspiring, but there's a lot of vulnerability there, and it can be useful for the causes we're trying to advance. Mm -hmm. but like poverty porn, they talk right. about, right? This exactly. idea that at some point you're just running in and saying, tell me all the horrible things, and didn't something terrible happen to you? So I'll tell you a great story. Um, when I did our, our second Black in America documentary, we told the story of a guy named Steve Perry who runs a school, and one of his students was a young woman who was trying to go to college. Her name was Glorious Menifee, and Glorious actually happens to be one of our scholars now. So I was working with this producer on this documentary, and the script, usually the producer does the first pass on the script, said, Glorious Menifee's mother is a crack addict and her father is an alcoholic. And I was like, well, I mean, that's true, but that's really not about Glorious, right? Glorious Menifee is an 18-year-old girl who's trying to go to college. And, and I'm not trying to hide the things that are true, but I also don't think that we're really being true to who this woman is as a human being. And I said to the producer, you know, if this were a 12-year-old white kid from suburban New Jersey, we'd be saying, little Bobby Smith loves baseball. He wants to be Derek Jeter when he grows up. And every night he sleeps with his mitt under his mattress because what he's trying to do is blah, blah, blah. We, we'd go into, and we often, for people not in poverty and not of color, we give them the full story of who they are. We're very good about it. When it comes to people of color, we use this shorthand. They're in the ghetto, they're in poverty, they're raped as a child. You know, we just do this little, like, ticket off, almost, you know, almost dehuman, I mean, truly dehumanizing them. And so I think you have to very forcefully be true. You know, people are a mix of, of bad and good. And, and where I think what you can really do is we added value to Gloria's story by telling her true story and not lying about her story. We certainly don't want to leave that stuff out. It's relevant. But Gloria's Menifee, our script ended up saying, is a B student who wants to go to college. She is a lacrosse, she's on the lacrosse team and is debate captain and is a peer mentor and blah, like we told Glorious's story, all those things that make her a human being. The fact that her mother was a crack addict, we went on, really destabilized her middle school years because her mother was in prison at a time when she really needed a mom. Her father's alcoholism has left the family often spiraling because it really keeps them very dysfunctional. So you, you just tell it honestly but not using the shorthand that we in news use a lot. You know, and, and you know, I, I've written a lot on this. You know, we call someone a thug. Like, I don't even know what that means. My version of thug and your version of thug might be very different. 
You say someone lives in the ghetto. Like, what does that mean? What, your, your version of a ghetto and what I see when I think ghetto might be very different. So it really is back to the details, you know? Who is glorious? Don't make it up and don't try to diminish the things that seem negative. Just tell them honestly and truthfully. And I think certainly around race and around um, class issues, you know, we give some people get 100 stories. They get a very nuanced look and most people get like, you know, Poor black people get like five stories, most of them about crime and sports, and poor Latinos only get stories about immigration, and, and Asian people get a story about, well, they're all great in school, when really the demographics would show you that there's a lot of struggle in that community around education. And if you're Native American, usually you won't get any coverage at all. An issue where every single child in, I think, fourth grade has studied you know, Native Americans, and they never will revisit them again. It's insane. So it's just detail and being very honest in the way that if someone were gonna tell your story, right? They tell the good and the bad, and that would be a better version of who you are. So Soledad, we have a quote up on the screen from you. It says, if you can tell a story well, you can move people to do something. And I think each of us in this room, every day when we walk into our offices, that's what we're looking to do, is to move people. So I hope that each of you have enjoyed this conversation, and I obviously encourage you to follow her on Twitter, because she will tweet back. <laughs> And, you know, please feel free to chat with her afterwards um, if you have any questions. But thank you all for joining us, and thank you, Soledad. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.